And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Cood Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Schran and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Nebula and World Fantasy Award-winning author James Morrow on the Cood Street Podcast! And our first podcast of the year 2015, and we're delighted to have... Uh, have James Moore with us because Jim, you have a book which has been out uh, what, something like a, about a week at this point, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Galapagos Regain. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. And, and it's, I it's a newborn baby. Yes. <laughs> uh huh. And it's uh, uh, it's it's about it's not really about Darwin, but it's certainly about Darwinism, and it's relevant in another reason uh, for another reason, and that is I think quite a few days ago the Washington Post was interviewing you about. Whether, I guess, to put it bluntly, from the way they were asking the question, does it feel safe to be a religious satirist these days? <laughs> it, it feels safe on these shores, and I would be kidding myself if I thought my project partook of the, the courage that the cartoonists in Paris displayed. Mm. Um, I've never felt any need to put a pillbox on my lawn uh, or to... Uh, <laughs> To, to rent a Doberman. Um, I mean, I, I, I sometimes get pretty angry responses to my project in the form of emails or Facebook posts. Um, on my birthday a couple years ago, somebody said, uh, well, you know, you always get these lovely greetings from the people yeah. you've friended, but uh, somebody uh, left a message that ran as follows. Mr. Morrow... I'm a devout Christian. I see you're actually pretty old and that you're going to die soon. And that makes me happy. <laughs> I said, well, thank you for that lovely, that lovely uh, spiritual sentiment. <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm, I'm curious. You, know, you, you describe it as your project. Do you see being a religious satirist as a project? I mean, it does seem to have filled your writing career from its earliest stages. Yeah, it's, it's really a calling, and um, I do keep going back to the same, well, you were noting, were you not, Jonathan, in a tweet that only begotten daughter is celebrating its quarter century birthday Indeed. Uh, mm -hmm. this year, um, 25 years since that book came out, and people are still going to church, so I have to keep <laughs> <laughs> writing uh, skeptical but but surely your, your goal isn't to stop them going to church it's it's more than that isn't it i i just want to make my contribution to the great post-enlightenment conversation gary said that uh, galapagos regained isn't really about darwin and it certainly is not any sort of an attempt to dramatize darwin's life um it's uh it's about the coming of this idea, the Darwinian worldview, the mm -hmm. fact that we, the, the, our, our human race got uh, punched in the face in, in uh, 1859 by a book called On the Origin of Species. And I think we're still reverberating from that, um, from that trauma. But uh, I, I would say, in, in a sense, it's a follow-up volume to my novel about the coming of the scientific worldview per se, the arrival of the age of reason, the advent of the enlightenment. So the uh -huh. last witch finder is manifestly a celebration uh, of, of the, the arrival of that 
that new idea that, uh, you know, maybe the world was not arranged in an optimum fashion from on high by a divine force. And maybe it's up to us to, uh, to look at our institutions and try to improve them and not accept some non-existent cosmic status quo. Um, I wonder, though, if uh, there are historical figures in the book, and Darwin does appear as a character. We yeah. should probably uh, make that clear. But also Bishop Wilberforce appears as really kind of a gothic villain in this. And the, 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 the issue is not that the book, or for that matter, not that The, uh, um, the Last Witchfinder, they, they don't make direct attacks on any religious belief. They simply uh, advocate for rational, as you put it, a rational enlightenment position. Um, the, the thing, I, 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 let me give you an example, and this, this could yeah. get us all in trouble. Uh, but, I, but the one thing that struck, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, I, I probably am not completely fair <laughs> to Bishop Wilberforce. <laughs> it's, it's always worth pointing out that his father was such a crucial figure in the abolitionist movement, uh, and wow. did so at religious inspiration. He was called from on high while sitting under a, a tree that then became famous to fight the slave trade. So it certainly behooves us yeah. atheists to acknowledge uh, the, the, the bright side of religion, even though I think God put me here to articulate <laughs> its, its dark side, <laughs> to argue against his existence. But, but but there's an aspect to um, what I was the scene I was about to mention or the character I was about to to mention, and we should probably preface this by telling people that this is essentially a picaresque novel. It's very funny. It gets wilder and wilder. There are bits in it that look like Jules Verne. There are bits in it that, well, end up in the New World and end up in the Galapagos Islands. But the th the scene I'm thinking of is not necessarily. Um, what I would consider a direct attack on any religion, but it involves the Book of Mormon. You have a guy who has set up a utopian community, which I believe he calls Duntopia. Is that what it's called? Yeah, right. Simple, and he Dun, uses as... Dun is the dullest of all possible. Exactly. He, he chooses the Book of Mormon as his text, even though he doesn't believe in it, because it's the dullest book in the world. Yeah, he doesn't want to create a, uh, a utopia of high expectations. He wants <laughs> diminished expectations because then there's no possibility of disappointment if your ideal community uh, you know, succumbs to, to human mediocrity. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm mostly having fun with that idea. And uh, although I quickly discovered, as many people do, it's impossible to crack the Book of Mormon without running into an intensely mediocre, boring thought. Uh, the, the noble ideas in that text are, are few and far between. Um, nevertheless, uh, sure, I'm, I'm uh, uh, critiquing, I guess, the whole idea of revelation, but I don't need to pick on any, any person's particular encounter with the divine. That's, uh, uh, it's not for me to judge the validity of that. Well, that's, that's, that's very, de very decent of you. Um, <laughs> But the sum oh, I'm the sorry that, that that was your reaction. No, I mean it's. Uh, <laughs> I certainly want to want to make as much mischief as possible, but I, I don't think I'm telling people what to think. I'm telling them to think. I guess that's for me the great gift of the Enlightenment is the open-endedness of the conversation, and yeah. uh, and then Darwin I think sort of completes one aspect of that revolution, and you know 
after Darwin, it's very difficult to make the argument from design anymore. It's very hard to make a teleological case for the existence of God because he demonstrated, to my satisfaction at least, that holy material processes can give us the biosphere. And en passant, he helps us to understand why the biosphere is often so cruel, which is maybe another reason to, to, to argue that it's not a, a divine creation. That you don't, but that's that's essentially the argument that your, your protagonist, and we should talk about the whole kind of Victorian melodrama, Chloe Bathurst is a great character, lovable, adorable character, and her argument, which she plagiarizes from Darwin, from having worked with him, is simply that the creator is, not, is unnecessary. Why do you need that belief? And that seems to be your argument in the book as well. Yeah, yeah, if, if we can um, account for um, the, the tree of life without reference to any sort of a, a sky hook, to use the term mm. one finds in Daniel Dennett's uh, book, Darwin's Dangerous Idea. If it can all be done with cranes or gantries, if it's all from the bottom up, uh, it seems like, like God's out of a job. Um, but what I like about the heroine, and I'm glad that, that she uh, struck a chord in you, is, is that she She's not grinding an axe uh, in the theological realm at all. She simply wants the money. Her father's mm-hmm. in a lot of trouble. He's in uh, in a workhouse, and he's headed for debtor's prison. Um, and she wants this opportunity to present Darwin's theory before the judges of the Percy Bysshe, at the Percy Bysshe Shelley Society, the judges of the great God contest, um, the big cash award to anyone who can prove or disprove the existence of God as a as an actress who lost her job owing to her lippiness her uh-huh. outspoken political views she would love to get back on the stage and she uh, she mostly understands the challenge as a, as a performance challenge uh, not as a theological challenge but she does have an arc Chloe's arc which mm-hmm. now that I think about it, sort of a play mm-hmm. on words in fact for a while part Part three of the book was was titled Chloe's Ark, and, and got mm. changed a preference for the ape. She indeed ends up on a replica of of Chloe's Ark. That's how she gets from the coast of Peru to Galapagos. Um, but she she changes. She goes through um, her own uh, kind of spiritual encounter, which she believes, um, which she believes is is a a, a divine visitation. Um, eventually, though, comes to embrace the Darwinian tree of life in a very passionate and committed way. So that's her arc is from being someone who's perhaps self-centered, but I, I think uh, sort of sympathetic, sympathetically uh, um, uh, resourceful <clears throat> to, oh, she's to a someone very... who's, a, who's oh. a thinker, who buys mm-hmm. into the whole notion of the conversation that should go on forever in a rational manner. There's a kind of theme that runs through, which I just thought of, actually, I, sh- I should have thought of when I was reading the book, but I think about it when you're talking about it, that mm-hmm. you're making a kind of parallel between theater and religion throughout the book. Uh, it's her theatrical techniques. There is, uh, and this is, I, I never know what to say that writers sometimes get sensitive about spoilers, but, but my theory is that if you talk about something which, is late in the novel and nobody knows how it gets there. It's not a spoiler, but there's a fake volcano. Somewhere I, that's, a, that's a good principle. Yeah, actually, I, 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 I love spoilers. 
I'm, okay, I, good. I have Thanks. to say, I have to say at the risk of sounding vain, that uh, my idea, my ideas are are good enough that when you hear them, you therefore want to experience the novel in which those ideas occur. So for me, spoilers are are, are advertisements. Okay, good. I, I completely agree with that, and so would John Clue. Uh, but it, oh, you were talking about. Uh, Theater, yeah. Well, I, I guess uh, I, I do like the, um, the 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 postmodern notion of of, of narrative, and and um, you know, re- religion is a is a is a grand narrative, science is a grand narrative, and so you could, and and the clash of narratives is is where I live. I and and particularly the clash of narratives in courtrooms. Uh, if you look at the James Morrow oeuvre, there's a hell of a lot of uh, people making cases before juries or panels of judges uh, in uh, the last Witchfinder, mm-hmm. uh, Janet Stern mas- masquerades as a witch so that she will be arrested and put on trial in Philadelphia circa 1725, as I recall my plot. And um, or no, no, it's more like 1730, I guess, uh, knowing that Benjamin Franklin will will report on this in his in his newspaper in the Pennsylvania Gazette and mm-hmm. she hopes that that will start a conversation that will bring down the parliamentary witchcraft statute in my novel blameless and abandoned I put God himself on trial for mm-hmm. crimes against humanity a uh, kind of a modern dress retelling of the book of job and and this is the way the world ends I have all the people whose lives were were canceled by Armageddon uh, being given this very brief tenure on planet <laughs> and so they choose to use their time as wisely as they can imagine, and they round up survivors who they also regard as guilty perpetrators. Um, so, yeah, the I, I, I'm I'm glad you noticed my attempt at writing a book that's fun, you know, that that has the spirit of uh, of, of of Candide and and Jules Verne and and. Mm-hmm. and and even the Indiana Jones cycle of, of movies, um, it, it maybe sort of got away from me. Uh, <laughs> it became more of an epic than I had sketched out. <laughs> and, and, you know, the original goal with this book was uh, to cash in on, <laughs> to capitalize on, uh, because we writers are survivors, even though we <laughs> often do it very well, uh, to cash in on the, on the, uh, the anniversary the 150th anniversary of the publication of The Origin of Species uh, was published in 1859. And so 2009 became my goal because uh, the, the media, which is full of Darwin, mm, yeah. Darwin stuff. Everybody was going to Downhouse and revisiting the arguments and uh, celebrating uh, his, his accomplishment. It was also the 200th anniversary of his of his birth well i missed the deadline by by six years you know the okay. the book got away from me but i sometimes think it's the the mark of a worthy book that you're not in control of it and you're surprised by the direction that the, the experimental design takes you in so is is the way that this book unfolded part of the reason that it's been so long since you've had a full-length novel out yeah, it always takes me a lot longer than I imagine. But uh, you know, I'm lucky; been been more or less able to survive by kiting credit cards and every once in a while. <laughs> um, 
And uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't feel I brought any of my books out too soon. You know? <laughs> huh. I, I, I guess it's just when I look at it from an a, agent I had. Yeah. I remember she said this in, a, in an almost sort of a furtive or shy way. She said, Jim, and she was a, a wonderful agent and, and had my best interest at heart. She said, Jim, do you think you could write a little faster? You'd, <laughs> you'd be more marketable as a client, you know, if you could speed up production. It's never worked out that way for me. But was that well, part yeah. of why the shorter novels for Tachyon? Yeah, they, uh, well, in addition to being a cynical uh, career move, like got to get my name in front of the <laughs> public, uh, if I possibly can, as soon as possible. Um, but but they were also sort of therapeutic. I mean, after all of the, the intellectual heavy lifting of my Godhead trilogy and then the last witch finder and all that research into into restoration England and colonial America and then. The Philosopher's Apprentice, which is at one level like a kind of overview of the of the whole of Western ethical thought, um, that uh, and, and then and then then this Darwin novel. In between, I did the I I, I went on a lark and uh, wrote Shambling towards Hiroshima and then uh, the Madonna and the Starship. I just it was it was great therapy. I mean, those well, books well, are ideas too, and they required research. But it was it was much more relaxing <laughs> than than these behemoths. Well, I'm I'm curious about the reaction you got to those novellas because I again they were a lot of fun. You could see you were having fun in them. But again, a lot of the readers that I've talked to about your work over the years, and we should mention that this this very elite theoretical, abstruse academic journal called Paradoxa devoted a whole issue to the what did they call it? I forget the subtitle. The, the Divine uh, the Comedy. Divine, the Divinely Human Comedy of James Kimura. Of, of, of James Kimura, yeah. Um, I think that some of these very intellectual readers of, views might, of yours might, might have been surprised at finding out how much you seem enamored of Godzilla movies and early 1950s television. <laughs> yeah, well, well um, I, uh, I've always been... Um, impressed by the aesthetics of the film critic Pauline Kael, who talked mm -hmm. a lot about what she called trash. And for Pauline Kael, trash was not a term of disparagement. Absolutely. It was, a, it was an attempt to name the exhilarating dimensions of art. And she said, uh, a remark she once made is, I've never trusted the judgment of people who were born with such good taste that they never needed to feel their way through trash. <laughs> and, uh, you know, here at Penn State University, I occasionally meet uh, casualties of a strictly academic notion of becoming a person of letters. And um, if I were to teach fiction here, I would say, let's, Let's remember that that all art is entertainment. Let's remember that all drama is melodrama. You know, uh, nobody understood that better than than Shakespeare. Doesn't work the other way around. You know, not all entertainment is art. Not all melodrama is drama. But without that dimension of delight, you, uh, I, I think you 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 risk uh, writing fiction that is sort of self self embalming and. Um, um, you know, I, I, I can't imagine not trying to be entertaining 
for for the sake of doing so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned Pauline Kael because she was one of my formative influences as a critic and a reviewer, not because oh. I agreed with everything she said, but because she was so passionate and, as you say, the exhilaration of stuff. Um, she and she wrote these little capsule reviews um, for the New Yorker, and there was a horrible movie. Absolutely terrible movie called Earthquake with Charlton Heston, um, yeah, and uh, which which came with some kind of pedal point bass special effect that caused the whole theater to shake. Which here in Chicago, oh, by the way, censor around, I think, yeah, censor around or something like that. And they showed that. I remember seeing this when it came out. That's well, actually, I can say how old I am with you, Jim, because we're in kind of the, almost the same ballpark. Yeah. But one of the one of the classic loop movie theaters showed that movie with its special effects and the whole theater vibrated and the masonry started falling off the ceiling onto the customers. Uh, <laughs> and we thought, this is really authentic. But but her one-line capsule review of that in The New Yorker was, L.A. gets it. And that's all you need to know about that movie. <laughs> she, her her uh, essay in which she brought all these ideas together, as I recall, is called Trash Art and the Movies. As yes, I say, absolutely. she actually, for her, it's a, it's a term of approbation. And the last mm -hmm. line is, uh, trash has given us an appetite for art. Um, and, you know, she was fearful, perhaps even paranoid, that movies were be going to become like the exclusive possession of an intelligentsia. And and she worried about what she called creeping Marienbad syndrome, <laughs> a relative of that film. Uh, what was Alan it called? Renee. Last year at Marienbad. Uh, la last year at Marienbad. Last, yeah. yeah. And, and that didn't really come to pass. In fact, <laughs> you know, if, if anything, there's a kind of malaise of hyper-commercialism and, you know, comic books being turned into movies. Mm. She didn't exactly foresee that. Yeah. She, she, I think she was afraid that her fellow uh, critics would, would lose touch with... Well, really, with the art of film. I mean, she she said in one of her earliest essays, you know, there's more art in in Gunga Dean and uh, Singing in the Rain and Citizen Kane than there is in uh, Antonioni movies. Which is very much Quentin Tarantino's attitude as well. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, their careers didn't overlap in any significant way. But the other thing you were talking about was was the, the kind of young writers that you see at, at neighboring Penn State and something, yeah. I, don't know if, I don't know if you were there at the time or not, but, but one of the, uh, am, am I correct that that's where uh, Philip Class was teaching for decades, William Tenn? Yes, absolutely. Uh, he taught and, the legendary science fiction survey class and uh, my wife is in the next room with one of his students, right, Kathy? Okay. Really? Uh, Kathy was uh, Phil Class's TA, um, and did he also teach Kathy a a course in the writing of science fiction? No, or? just writing. Uh, writing per oh, se, okay. or uh, journalism, or, or fiction. No, uh, 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 it was creative writing. Creative, and I creative writing. That too. It yeah. Was terrific. So, terrific. Um, uh, well. I, I got to know Phil in his final years. In fact, he's uh, he's a character in uh, the Madonna and the Starship. I noticed that. I I met him oh. once when I was I was at Con, Con, Confluence. Is that the one uh, in Pittsburgh? Yeah, in, in in Pittsburgh. Yeah, he was he was an amazing character, a genuine rock hunter, and uh, ultimately became an influence on me. And you know, was my 
sort of fellow satirist. I mean, he was well. That was that was that was exactly my next point. Before, before I was born, even yeah. <laughs> no, he was he was an astonishing character, and I don't know if he's remembered as well today as he should be. Even though uh, Nesva did either one or two volumes of his collected work, I believe. Yeah, I think um, I think it took two volumes to get all the stories in print and a third volume of, of nonfiction. Um, mm. I do remember when that book premiered at a uh, Philcon. What year mm. would that have been, Kathy? Uh, Sorry. Uh, and I, and, and uh, so they rolled out, it was at Philcon, they rolled out the Nesta Press Phil Class omnibus the, 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 all three volumes and, and, and uh, Kathy escorted him into the hall and he saw this long line that wound uh, like ah. this, this magical snake all around the hall up to the table where he was supposed to sit and sign. He said, are they here for me? <laughs> <laughs> Those people remember me. They actually want to read my stories. <laughs> so it was, it was a beautiful moment. Do you think sometimes science fiction, which you know, nominally and quite often deliberately your work falls into, sometimes loses track of things and becomes too self-serious and in doing so perhaps loses the power it can have? Um, are you talking about uh, what science fiction that takes itself too seriously? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. because I mean, we're talking about, you know, Pauline Kael and about trash and everything else. And you, yeah. if you stop, if you take that and then apply it to you know, science fiction and fantasy, the, the genre in, you know, which we're in, you know, I, I look around today and I think there is a tendency to perhaps an excess of self-seriousness and a inability to appreciate trash hmm. in the, in the uh -huh. Kael sense at times. And I wonder if that's a, yeah. if that's a concern. I, I don't lose sleep over that. Um, well, I guess we shouldn't name names no. <laughs> <laughs> of, of those who are guilty of this this sin of uh, perhaps uh, of pomposity, perhaps. But now, if anything, what I feel I'm constantly up against uh, is the stigma of being a science fiction writer. You know, uh, you know, the sort of some of my best friends are write write science fiction, or you know, that that Ray Bradbury, he's a real credit to his race, isn't he? Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, that's you know the the English teachers of the world love Bradbury weren't sufficiently curious, in my view about about his about his colleagues, um, but uh, yeah I I guess that science fiction uh, will always always uh, be marginalized or will marginalize itself and that's not a that's not a bad thing, uh, but it's never going to get respectability qua science fiction. I mean, genres are thought of as simply sure. being, you know, inferior, a lower grade of, of mm. a more primitive kind of a creature than literary fiction. Um, I have found that uh, the genre has freed me up. I've been able to do these wild uh -huh. uh, thought experiments, you know, with, with uh, Jesus Christ divine half-sister running around in contemporary Atlantic City and not worry too much about whether that was a commercial idea, whether it would prove, you know, uh, congenial to people who liked, uh, you know, uh, John Updike. Uh, 
um, didn't didn't have to worry about that. Well, no, I think. Go ahead, Jonathan. Well, I was going to say, I mean, but do you think maybe if you look at sort of the literary mainstream a little bit, and you look at sort of the Tom Robbins and the John Irvings and whoever else, that maybe it you may have been better served by not being labelled then as being science fiction and fantasy, even though there are such plain science fiction and fantastical elements in your work. Oh yeah, yeah, I have regrets. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Life is nothing but regrets, right? Uh, yeah. Sure, I could have imagined my career taking a turn into the very zone where uh, Tom Robbins certainly ended up. Maybe not so much Irving, who, who uh, mm. probably was an influence on me. I, I think he was a satirist of a different order. Kurt Vonnegut comes to mind immediately. I, I had hoped well, he's to the, he, the 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 next Kurt Vonnegut, and we I made some efforts <laughs> to get his endorsement or kept telling my publishers, well, you should try to market me as Kurt Vonnegut, but didn't break well, that you, way. You do get yeah. compared to Kurt Vonnegut, but you get compared to Kurt Vonnegut like, okay, your science fiction's Kurt Vonnegut, and Kurt Vonnegut is, Kurt Vonnegut was science fiction's Kurt Vonnegut until about 1959 when he decided, I'd better get out of here. Um, yeah. There, there was that just, famous, uh, Yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm only say there talking was... about sales. I'm only talking about sales figures. You know, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> oh, not, yeah, not about uh, about comparisons between myself and other writers, which have been very gratifying. Um, but uh, Vonnegut made a very astute move, and and he did go to his agent um, and said, in so many words, was this? Uh, can't remember. Um, said, "Get me out of here." You know, get me out of this, yeah. out of this ghetto. Um, and they figured out that they could market Kurt Vonnegut as a as a mainstream author. He was helped tremendously by the medium of uh, mass market paperbacks. That's what everybody was reading Vonnegut in that in that format. Right. Um, Gold medal so. paperbacks published. Uh, but anyway, but to some extent, you've you've. You've gotten as far out as a lot of people who started in the genre have. I mean, the last three books, starting uh, with The Last Witchfinder and The Philosopher's Apprentice and Not Galapagos Regained, the marketing of them looks very mainstream. And I think the sense that St. Martin's has is that, you know, you've got your science fiction following and they will follow you. And now you can build up on the new following. They, Plus, they you've been, yeah. and, and you've been publishing stories in journals like Conjunctions and Brad Morrow seems very fond of your work, hmm. um, yeah. which is... Which is breaking out. Um, it, it's breaking out in, in just about every way other than becoming well-known. Uh, <laughs> in, in, in the sense of, uh, you know, I'm not going to walk into Barnes & Noble and see uh, a line of my books reprinted in, uh, in trade paperback. Uh, they have been reprinted in trade paperback, but they, mm -hmm. they've not had that much staying power. But I should not be complaining. I've been treated very well, both by the science fiction community and by the, the larger publishing world, in the sense of editors who acquired faith in me and published me in spite of the sales figures, uh, which mm. exercise such a tyrannical influence, always have, I guess, on the, uh, on the, the industry. Um, but uh, it, it's a, a little known fact that even I didn't know about myself until I, I sat down and, and started to revise my uh, uh, Wikipedia article that most of my novels were published as mainstream. Yeah. Only the yeah. first two 
were, were, were uh, presented as science fiction. All the ones that came after that uh, were, were, had, had uh, mainstream covers and, and yeah. did not say, here's the new science fiction novel by James Morrow. And there's a sense in which that didn't work. So um, maybe may uh, cultivating a, an unequivocal science fiction identity would have been a better <laughs> career move for me. I often tell the story of how um, a novel of mine I, 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 I like quite a bit called This is the Way the World Ends, which mm-hmm. was a, a kind of Vonnegutian satire on the East-West standoff in the 1980s when there was all that nuclear saber rattling uh happening uh in the in the reagan administration um and i thought well this this is a a vonnegut like novel and and uh henry holt is doing it as a mainstream hardcover and they got some wonderful reviews in in the la times and and the philadelphia inquirer other major papers but it just as a hardcover just died a dog's death at the box office and the science fiction (laughs) world came to its rescue um it uh, there was like no interest uh, among any publishers uh, mainstream publishers in doing the uh, mass market paperback reprint um and uh, i sent uh, <laughs> a plaintiff letter to susan allison at ace book saying you know susan mm-hmm. you you did my first novel for ace and nobody wants to do this book and and she wrote back and said you know jim um I read the book. There's one moment in it that made me cry. Uh, of course, I'll do it. And I want you to understand, this is not about me waiting around for there to be a fire sale. You know, I, I thought it was going to be snapped up, too, by some uh, by a mainstream kind of mass market imprint. It was picked up by the Science Fiction Book Club. It was nominated for a Nebula. And it's uh, the degree to which this is the way the world ends is kept alive today it's 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 within the science fiction world yeah almost well, and i think historically science fiction readers will follow a writer in into mainstream success i mean science fiction readers never abandon vonnegut science fiction if if michael yes. chabon publishes a mainstream novel science fiction readers will go and give it what a hugo and a nebula uh, for the Yiddish Policeman's Union. In other words, science fiction readers are much more tolerant of the mainstream than mainstream readers are of science fiction, don't you think? Absolutely, yes, yes. yes. To to the credit of science fiction readers, they are more adventuresome in their tastes. And, you know, if you think about it, it's like the diversity within what we call science fiction, and it gets even more diverse if we call it science fiction and fantasy, uh-huh. uh, the diversity of themes, subject, ambition, voice, uh, literary accomplishment, uh, level of of gratifying trash, all whatever the qualities we would like a book to have, there's a much wider range than within the mainstream, or certainly within realistic psychological fiction. I think that's why you've seen uh, so many writers like Michael Chabon and and Jonathan Lethem uh, drawn to to SF tropes. uh, Mm -hmm. And... uh, in fact, uh, my understanding of what happened with uh, Jonathan Lethem's novel called Chronic City is that the mainstream critics closed ranks against that book on the whole. Uh, they hated oh, really? it. Said, oh, this is Jonathan has betrayed yeah. his, uh, uh, his, his, uh, the, the support he got from the literary world. And he's, and he's gone back to this 
this this uh, disreputable science fiction heritage that he should have known <laughs> to abandon and walk away from. But I, I saluted Jonathan for writing a, a, a Phil Dick novel that I found yeah. quite satisfying. Oh, I think you're absolutely right about him and his and and both um, both those authors and I. I, I'm not sh- I, I'm not sure about Karen Russell because I've never talked to her, but I know both Michael Chabon and Jonathan Lethem are completely unembarrassed about their origins as science fiction readers, uh, yeah. and and they'll 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 move comfortably between the two. I know that at least Lethem, uh, for a few years, was accused I think unfairly by the science fiction community of essentially having moved uptown, um, and the reality behind that, as far as I could discern, and I actually talked to him about it once at a ReaderCon, I think, was that mm-hmm. he was he was being successful, that's all. He was being invited to parties that other science fiction writers weren't being invited to, and what was he supposed to do? Say, no, I'm not coming? Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> of course, no. I, I, uh, I wish more more t- power to people who can who can make that, that move. Um, and uh, I think there's some sour grapes but uh, going on. Mm-hmm vis-a-vis the success of someone like Jonathan. Have you ever found any real difficulty in <clears throat> placing your novels given their subject matter? I mean, we talked at the beginning about, you know, the, you know, the, the mission and the, the whole sort of continuing on from the discussion <laughs> of the Enlightenment and also yeah. touched on the whole Charlie Hebdo thing. You know, is it is yeah. it a difficult thing to, to place you know, fiction, you know, satirical fiction that addresses things like this, you know, you know, key, you know, religious issues, whatever else. I, I think it's more that my novels are, are dense with ideas and illusions and the diction could get pretty lofty. And I've gotten a sense mm-hmm. that some of the rejections were a function of that, that uh, The Last Witchfinder mm-hmm. was turned down by 17 or 18 editors and at least half really? of them said, um, at least half of them said, uh, you know, I didn't like this uh, th- th- this sort of restoration prose when I had to deal with it in uh, John Barst, the sotweed factor, and I still don't <laughs> like it. And uh, it's off-putting to readers. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, I've been told by editors, Jim, can't you write something that's a little more accessible? And I think what I'm doing is is fun, and I'm I'm committed uh, to the to the virtues of plot and um, reader involvement and humor. Um, but for some readers, that's for some editors, that's not been sufficient. I I don't think, in all honesty, that the uh, the, the the heretical dimension of my novels is, is is a reason they've been turned down uh-huh. but I'll, I'll never know um, I, I, uh, I for example I, I, I'm always anxious to make the point that one of my chief supporters the critic Ron Charles at the Washington Post is is a, mm-hmm. is, a is a Christian scientist and really? um, he uh, he told me during during the the interview that we did a within hours of the the Charlie Hebdo disaster that, you know, he's a churchgoer and he prays. And, um, uh, you know, I ended up saying, well, 
it would certainly be a better world if we atheists and you churchgoers could make common cause against uh, the forces of nihilism. And because I guess I guess that's what mm. I'm, I'm really standing against. It's, it's not Christianity per se. It's Christian nihilism, of which there's an enormous amount. You know, this this, mm-hmm. this, this Christian manichaeism that uh, the notion that we the world divides into the saved and the damned. You know, um, and the we, worst idea. Yeah. You know. We're going to talk about before we get out of the here. We're going to talk about your short stories, but there was yeah, a yeah. there is a story you've written, and this is another spoiler in which that is the worst single idea humanity has ever come up with. Oh, that's right the the one about the abyss, fixing the abyss, uh, yeah. fixing the abyss. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that that was the the thought that popped into my head on nine eleven, um, and and I, I thought of a, a line from. Uh, uh, from Jacob Bernowski's wonderful series called The Ascent of Man that he did on public television. Well, that TV, yeah. Yeah, back in the 70s. About The image was the dead hand of the past that, that, that reaches out and tells the scientist, the investigator, the curious person, thou shalt not go any further with this thought, the sort of the, the dictatorship of the dead. And uh, yeah. that was my reaction to 9-11. You know, the dead hand of the past has come out once again, has, has come out of hiding to kill people. Um, uh, what Salman Rushdie calls the medieval, medieval unreason. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I ended up thinking, I can't think of a worse idea than that, that, that Manichaeism, uh, that Zoroastrian idea that, uh, well, this, this. This world is is corrupt, and 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 uh, our only hope is is transcendence, is to go to some invisible land. But I but but, but the like other argument. Go ahead. Hmm? No, I, I I agree. But one of the things I was reading an article I think in the New York Times today about how the um, the Muslim community, for example, uh, has repeatedly. Uh, responded with articles along the lines of when when somebody who's a Muslim does something like the Charlie Hebdo killings, everybody asks about the validity of the Muslim religion as a violent religion. When when the Ku Klux Klan lynches somebody, nobody goes to other Christians and says, this, does this represent your beliefs? In other words, there, there is something to be said for the fact that even though the outcomes of religion may be violent, the, the, the tenets of the religion are not necessarily well, that's uh, uh, a, 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 a mighty provocative uh, statement. I mean, I, I have to just I have to ponder that. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if I agree. I, I'm I fear there's something inherently divisive in in the notion that there's a divine stratum to the world because I, I feel it divides one's loyalties. There's your loyalty I think that's to true. Your, fellow, your fellow human beings and then, then there's your loyalty to the divine. And those two constituencies don't reliably make the same demands. No, and, I agree. Yeah. What um, I'm saying is, is, is not that, you're absolutely right. Let's, let's take this idea which you have um, addressed let's say, I'm not going to say attacked, let's say addressed in more than one story, that dividing the world into the saved and the unsaved is a really dangerous idea. And I can agree with that. And even yeah. if that's a dangerous idea, 
the people like these uh, kids, basically, who, who, who shot the staff of Hebdo, they don't even believe in that idea. They're only pretending to believe in that. In other words, there's not even a real religious commitment there, even if it's a commitment to a bad religious idea. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I, I, I see what you're getting at. No, I, I would not uh, disagree. I mean, uh, the, the uh, you know, I, saying, I just want to keep the conversation going. Is Islam, <laughs> like, in some uh, uh, intrinsic way, violent or anti-humanistic? No, I think that'd be a preposterous argument to make. Well, there's one um, science fiction writer who has made that argument, but we can leave him nameless for the moment. Okay. Uh but at the same at the same time, I I, I have to worry that um, you know when uh, when you believe that there is a God, it is such it, it is such an, uh, a, a, a natural move, but a very troublesome move to decide you know that God's what that God's opinions are. You yeah. know how that God thinks. You know what that God expects of you. And uh, that supreme arrogance, I think, is invited by religious thought, particularly by the organized churches. And, mm -hmm. and I would never accuse mere philosophy or mere humanistic reason of anything resembling that, that ego, because it, it answers to no one. The conversation's over. When God has spoken to you, yeah. or when you appoint yourself, the uh, avenger of an offended prophet who is in turn uh, constantly uh, in, in touch with Allah, uh, then there, there's, no, there's no discussion to be there's had. There's no discussion, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually think it's maybe a mistake, I'm playing with this idea, to, to frame uh, the, the Charlie Hebdo massacre as a free speech issue. I think at one level it has almost nothing to do with freedom of expression, when somebody is pointing a gun at you and, and um, uh, about to blow your head off uh, because you've offended that person's God, we're not having a conversation about about printing presses anymore. Um, we're, in fact, mm -hmm. we're not having a conversation. We're back in the realm of the terrible idea, this terrible idea of the supernatural stratum well that's not a problem per se most everybody believes in a supernatural stratum i don't but <laughs> but mm -hmm. just about everybody seems to that's not the problem but when you then start to speak for it when you know uh exactly how the universe works and it's not given to anybody to know how the universe works S so you know that's uh that's how i Constructed. Well, the, the, um, it, yeah. yeah, the dialogue I mean, goes back. It's, to it's worth remembering that, you know, the 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 Charlie Hebdo offices were not in a theocracy. They were in France. They were in yeah, that, this right. bastion of free expression. They were in this cradle of the Enlightenment. So I think we have to to also worry about um, the the issue. That, I mean, Salman Rushdie came out of the gate saying. Well, the the problem is is deference to to religion, and we we are not under any obligation to respect religion. Or he thinks that's too often, mm. too quickly becomes a euphemism for uh, for, for fear of religion. Um, 
and it's it's uh, I, I think of a phrase that's in uh, I guess the current issue of the New Yorker. Adam Gopnik uh, wrote about um, the the Charlie Hebdo massacre from his perspective as a Francophile and someone who's, who's very conversant in in uh, mm-hmm. French literary and, and culture and culture in general. And but he ends ends up by talking about the 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 wrath of faith. I think is the so that's what mm. I fear. The wrath of faith. It's 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 a beast, I think. Um, got domesticated by the Enlightenment in, in the West. And that was all to the good. Um, well, one of the things that uh, remind the, the what you're saying now reminds me of it. It goes back to the last witch finder. And, and in some senses, with all the panoply of characters you have in that novel, in some senses, the central tension in that novel is between two characters who are books. It's between the Principia <laughs> Mathematica and the Malleus Maleficarum. And yeah. essentially what you seem to be saying is, okay, this may have been one for the Malleus Maleficarum. <laughs> you, you mean, you mean the, the rise of the, of the witch universe? And the, well, yeah, and the, exactly. This, this, is, this is a version of witch hunting. Um, well, it's, it's always going to be with us. Uh, but you mean that, the, like, be, because the Malleus Maleficarum would be conscious itself, just like Newton's Principia Mathematica is. That uh, well, I, I, the way uh, I read that novel is that there was this overriding sort of discussion between the two books. I mean, first of all, let's yeah. face it, Jim. This is a pretty bizarre idea to have a novel narrated by a book. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, <laughs> I resorted to that because I I didn't want to seem like an unqualified apologist for the Enlightenment or, <laughs> or somebody who turned his affection for science into its own sort of religion. So I figured I need uh, I need a voice that has perspective on all this and is, and is kind of sardonic, a little bit snarky. So the <laughs> Principia gets to say, well, you know, I understand the limitations of reason and, uh, you know, the Principia Mathematical will always give a fair hearing to a hippie or you know, anyone... <laughs> partakes of sort of new age ways of being in the world. I mean, he's being kind of sarcastic, but I just yeah. wanted to alert the reader to uh, the fact that I'm not trying to to, to write a, a work of propaganda or, or only file a brief on, on behalf of the Enlightenment and scientific reason, because it's got its own limitations, mm-hmm. God knows. It's, it's <laughs> every bit a human creation, too, just like religion. I would argue it's a human creation in relationship to a universe that to allude to one of Einstein's remarks is is um, weirdly or mysteriously or wonderfully knowable up to a point um, and uh, that that mm-hmm. fascinates but um, yeah the the sentient book uh, was was a, a kind of last minute decision at one point I had um, my heroine's aunt writing a long mystical poem that included a vision of the future and that included the French Revolution, uh, mm-hmm. which, of course, has not yet happened. And the French Revolution is always exhibit A in any indictment of the Enlightenment. Um, and it does seem as if for some of its architects, reason had become its own sort of church. Um mm-hmm. But then I said to myself, wait a minute, if this woman is writing a, a, a kind of William Blake mystical poem with, 
with valid visions of the future, we're way out of the James Morrow rationality zone, you know, <laughs> contradicting my worldview. So I said, well, I'll do something even weirder than that then. So you're right, I'll, I'll do something that's so strange and so off the wall, it maybe won't raise that question of, of are, am I using the supernatural? Am I resorting to the supernatural to critique the supernatural? Hmm. Did you get a lot of response to that? Because that, I, I thought it was delightful. And I thought, okay, if you're a book, you're going to worry about things like going out of print or being abridged or being you know, summarized. <laughs> All the things that can happen to you when you're a book. <laughs> I like that, Gary. I wish I'd, what you just said, uh, I don't think is in, in the, the novel, at least not as explicitly. Imp- it's imp- it. I, I love a, that. That's a, the worries of, of being a book and, and, and going, out of, going out of print. Um, there was at least one editor who rejected The Last Witchfinder in manuscript mm-hmm. form, mm-hmm. who said, well, if you take out this framing stuff, this, this book that's written, you know, this Newton's Principia Mathematica that is the author, supposedly, adventures, <laughs> then we could publish it as just straight historical fiction. You know, and 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 uh, oh dear, you know, you might get into a sort of Ken Follett zone here, and wouldn't that be great? But by that yeah. time, I was committed to the to the dance of ideas and the way the Principia Mathematica. Yeah, let me flash forward to the French Revolution, <laughs> and because because the Principia can like inhabit minds, and so it goes inside the head of a right. a cure, a French priest, and and the Principia is therefore beheaded, and and so I give I give that critique. I think of the Enlightenment. Uh, I take it seriously. Mm-hmm. We should also mention that even though it's later this year, that the uh, uh, the reality by other means, uh, which mm-hmm. is, it's not your first collection of stories, is it? The third. No, no. Uh, I, third? I did uh, well. A kind of a chapbook thing that was part of the author's choice series mm-hmm. from Pulp. I many. I remember Pulp House, yeah. Um, and uh, I don't remember what number I was, but it was something like Author's Choice Monthly, number 17. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and then I did, uh, when I was riding high with the uh, Harcourt Brace, um, they, they came up with the idea of doing a short story collection. And they did it in a hardcover, and it sold pretty mm-hmm. well. And that was called Bible Stories for Adults, which I put together my four oh, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. stories that I published under the rubric Bible Stories for Adults number 17 or number 23 or whatever. And then uh, quite recently, uh, a collection from Tachyon called The Cat's Pajamas and Other Stories. Right. Uh, but um, since I, I noticed, couldn't help noticing that, that Wesleyan does... Uh, classy things with uh, with genre literature, uh, with with, a, with with Samuel R. Delaney and uh, and and Kit Reed and and writers of that caliber. So I figured, well, mm. I'm not getting any younger. I'd like to do this now. I don't want to wait <laughs> to assemble a definitive James Morrow collection when I'm too old and sick and and feeble uh, to to appreciate it. So. Um, I had story, some stories that I'm very pleased with. Uh, conspicuously, the ones I'd done for conjunctions, but there didn't seem to be any prospect for those stories getting getting any more traction outside uh-huh. of the conjunctions readership, which is circumscribed. God, God bless them. Uh, so I figured I want to. I, I I I really would like to present 
these stories in a new format and then throw in the stories from the from the first two collections that that still work for me and that I'm still pretty pleased with. Uh-huh. And we should add it has a splendid introduction <laughs> by Gary K. Wolf. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he wrote a, a marvelous, uh, uh, I think, g- g- give the, gave the reader a, a tour not only of the, the contents of the book, but of my whole project. And, and, <laughs> and you put your finger on the, you know, I, 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 I do draw so much energy from kludging together uh, philosophical concerns that can become a little bit rarefied, I suppose, and not everyone's cup of tea, with my my love of trash or my uh, you know my my tremendous affection for uh, for, for cinema and and and, uh, and graphic novels and other. Well, I mean, you, I, and that's one of the things I, I I enjoyed reading these stories. Less than half of which I had, probably a third of which I had read before. And I always wondered when you were talking about this sort of dual perspective, on the one hand, there is the very intellectual philosophical bent. And the story I the story I probably spent more time talking about than I should have in the introduction was the one called Fixing the Abyss, which starts yeah. out with Jacques Derrida and ends up with this cheap <laughs> monster movie called Kaltiki, the Immortal Monster. And what kind of audience reads Derrida and watches Mexican horror films at the same time? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it, it, may, it may not be the most astute choice on <laughs> finding a large audience, but, uh, you know, I, I, is it perhaps all the same thing? Uh, maybe that's too pretentious a way to, to think of it, but... But the traditional distinction between high and low art, I think, collapsed a long time ago. And that's oh, I think so. Yeah, that's what I've always appreciated about what I understand to be the postmodern contribution to aesthetics and literary criticism, uh, that suddenly you can have characters who take note of the fact that they're they're in this maelstrom of popular culture. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, right. and might, in fact, really love it. And um so it, it opened up a whole, a whole other lexicon, um, so that the illusions, in, illusions in my fiction, while they are sometimes literary and highfalutin, scriptural, um, and, and 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 range across, uh, you know, the sort of scholastic universe, they're also I also use illusions all the time to popular culture, and I draw energy from that. You know, I mean, I was mm-hmm. a child just like everybody else, and. Uh, uh, and I haven't outgrown it, <laughs> and, I, and I'm happy I didn't. It was it was a, such a wonderful excuse <laughs> to visit to revisit Godzilla movies uh, uh-huh. that was that was given to me by by my shambling towards Hiroshima project. Uh, it was a and when I wrote Madonna and the Starship. It was a great excuse to hunt up um, the old uh, Captain Video and and. Um, Space Patrol VHS transfers, mm. and to remember my childhood self and the pleasure I took in it. And it's not exactly the same pleasure, but I, I would, I would not want to write anything that, that didn't have that element of of, mm. of, of, of juvenile delight. Juvenile. No, was, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and when I was doing this. Um, this Library of America thing on the 50s, one of the things, I, I guess I'd known this and never 
thought about it, but when you go back to those early 50s TV shows, people like Alfred Bester and James Blish were involved in writing some of them. Um, so it's yeah. not as though that was completely divorced from our world. Yeah. I mean, they saw it as an opportunity to... They, they, were, tr they were trying to, to make some money, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> to make money. But they did it right. with tremendous craft and commitment Absolutely. and sincerity. Um, I mean, even... Uh, well, like when we go to to Star Trek, and my my novella Madonna and the Starship ends with the main character getting a job writing Kirk and Spock adventures, and I I was no sort of a Trekkie as a as a high school kid. Mm. I guess I, I was much more of a snob then than I am now. I just figured, oh, Star Trek, that looks these guys running around in their pajamas. This looks really <laughs> dumb. Like, you know, I'm I'm going to read Kafka, uh, <laughs> and. Uh, but uh, my my wife Kathy very much appreciated the show, and it was tremendous, tremendously important to her. And and mm -hmm. she helped me to to shed the, the the spectacles of prejudice against the just the look of the thing. And uh, you know, lo and behold, there's an episode by Norman Spinrad, and there's mm -hmm. an episode by Sturgeon, and uh, yeah, a f very famous episode by Harlan Ellison. You know. mm -hmm. Uh, you know, three three writers who contributed so much to science fiction as a visionary literature with unembarrassed emphasis on the word literature. I mean, they all aspired, Spinrad, and they have all aspired right. Spinrad, and Sturgeon, and 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 Ellison to, uh, to 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 write in in a in a style and with a commitment to craft that's commensurate with anything that's happening in the mainstream. And I I'm probably reading out some. some <laughs> I don't some, know. You've uh, never. Well, the, the the next obvious question. You've never been tempted to, or invited to, or, uh, or, or 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 sort of inclined to try to write for media, to write for television or movies or um, radio well, or whatever. Um, oh, give me a chance to sell out, and then I'll, I'll get back. <laughs> Whether I, I uh, walked away from that. That particular one ring of power. I, I did adapt some of my stories, although this was certainly for a minority market, uh, going back, what, 15 years, uh, on the, the Sci-Fi Channel's website, there was a feature called Seeing Ear Theater, and this wonderful uh, radio producer named uh, Brian Smith uh, got a bunch of us science fiction writers to adapt our short stories to the to the medium and they uh -huh. were were brilliantly produced i mean they were they um they were done in new york city and they got broadway actors um, wow to to be in them so my my story called diary diary of a mad deity became um a stanley tucci <laughs> uh regular really? star starring him as the protagonist um because uh, it's uh, monday nights uh, broadway theaters are dark and so monday afternoon wow. since the actors didn't have to go anywhere that night uh brian would uh, you know through their agents sometimes just through chutzpah i guess uh, mm -hmm. got them to show up uh actors love radio drama you don't have to memorize your lines and with just a little bit of rehearsal he would get tremendously polished performances and he understood the medium uh, brilliantly, he didn't didn't rely on narration, which was the 
the criticism I had of uh, the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Uh, oh, you know, yeah. Brian, right back to basic sort of Arch Obler sound design and understanding that you're supposed to make the drama happen inside the head of the listener. It's, it's the listener, uh, yeah. It's theater of the mind. He called it seeing, hear, theater. And if you tool around the internet, you can find uh, my uh, diary, diary of a Mad Deity starring Stanley Tucci and another story of mine called called Daughter Earth. Excellent. Okay, well, Daughter I, I, Earth is... Okay, go ahead, Jonathan. I was just say, I guess I should, we should say at this point that with Galapagos Regained just out, with mm-hmm. the selected stories coming out from Wesleyan later in the year, where do you see the project going next? Have you begun to think about that? What am I, what am I going to do next? Um... I'm, I'm wondering if I if I fully answered Gary's question. Oh, sorry. About okay, me. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I've I've had a couple of, of movie options, and I once because uh, I was really hard up for for cash, uh, threw in with an independent film company who wanted to to make a movie of uh, City of Truth, my novella, and they hired me to write mm. the screen. I didn't oh. really know what I was doing, even though I had some something of a background in, in filmmaking. And, and uh, uh, years later, another independent filmmaker got a hold of the project, did his own adaptation, was much better. And what I learned, um, it's, it's odd for a writer to feel this way, is that what was good about the adaptation I didn't write is that it wasn't faithful. It was not faithful to my text. He reimagined uh-huh. it, which I think you have to do when you go from one medium to another. Um, but what's on the horizon for me? Uh, you won't be surprised to hear another kind of theological thought experiment uh, uh, rooted in history. I remember being on a panel at uh, ReaderCon uh, and saying, you know, I've been toying with this idea of, uh, of, of uh, somehow dramatizing in a quirky way the Council of Nicaea which I think is circa 325 AD, when oh. so many points of Christian theology were hashed out and people had to decide on the nature of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I said, this sounds like James Morrow territory. This sounds like uh-huh. a, an, another one of my damn courtroom dramas. And, and a fellow panelist said, you must do that. You know, we must have James Morrow's take on the Council of Nicaea. And I looked into it. And I realized, wow, there's, a, there's, there's two big scenes available to, to uh, the fiction writer, there's the the uh, the conversion of Constantine, or at least his his victory in the Battle of the Milvian mm. Bridge, um, and, and whereby he consolidates his uh, his rule over the over the of the Roman Empire, and then um, that that I guess is around uh, uh, 312 A.D. and then in 325, you have the Council of Nicaea. And I said, well, two really, really big scenes. So I've got my part one and intermission and part two. Um, cool. And uh, it, I've, I've sketched it out. I think it's actually going to involve a time-traveling Lazarus uh, who has ended up in contemporary New York City um, <laughs> circa, circa 1963 because he just ran away from the badness of that era. I mean, he's been able to move around from his own time, uh, from from uh, New Testament times to uh, to the Council of Nicaea. He's actually he's actually the source of Constantine's uh, conversion to Christianity. Lazarus shows up 
the night before the battle and convinces him to uh, to have all the soldiers to arrange for his soldiers to paint the, the, the Cairo symbol for Christianity on their shields and their helmets. And they are victorious. So Constantine decides, ah, there's a, there's a, something to this Christianity. And uh, he indeed makes it, of course, the, the official faith uh-huh. of, of the empire, I think for very pragmatic reasons. I mean, he's, he's a hero uh, in the history of Christianity to people of faith, but it's pretty clear that he, he, didn't, he didn't really have a, 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 a numinous experience or a, or a conversion. It was, it was a gradual uh, recognition that, that this would be the, the way to, to bring some harmony or unity to the empire. If we could just have this, this one faith. It so sounds that's like a, that sounds fascinating. I mean, it's, it's it's not what I would have guessed when you described earlier. Okay, we've, we've, if, you, if you described the last Witchfinder and Galapagos regained as being two in a series, and you're doing Newton and Darwin, then the first thing everybody's going to think of is, well, there's Einstein. You know, there's, yeah. who's, who's the next person to sort of decentralize? Yeah, that? yeah. I, I, I've I've toyed with that idea, but I don't understand uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Einstein. Fair enough. I mean, I, I can pretend yeah. to be uh, yeah. an expert. Of course, that's the fun of being a novelist, is you, you, you can represent yourself as, as uh, being conversant in, in fields you, in fact, know nothing about. But in the Einstein narrative, there's not the same dance of ideas that I love so much. There's not the same human drama, at least as I understand mm. his life and, and what happened when his, you know, nobody was traumatized by yeah by Einstein's ideas in a way that, um, you know, uh, uh, Newton, in a sense, sets the stage for secular scientific rationality right, exactly. to take over the West, even though it was the last thing that Newton had in mind. He thought of himself as kind of God's avatar. He thought of himself as a prophet. And then this, the trauma of, of Darwin. And as I say, we're still recovering from that. So to me, those are very dramatic yeah. episodes. Not, not so much the coming of the of the special theory of relativity. <laughs> Probably true. And we should also mention before we before we wrap this up, which we need to do shortly, because when you mentioned having a time traveling Lazarus in, in, in the Council yeah. of Nicaea novel, it reminded me of uh, something. And I don't know if you get it's probably too early to get reactions. Galapagos regained when it comes out is going to strike many people as being largely an historical novel, a picaresque historical novel, but there's a kind of core science fiction, there's a kind of time-traveling tea house, I guess, is the best way to describe it. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've got uh, this hookah den where people yeah. can indulge in this uh, you know, hallucinogen, and it has the effect of making you imagine that you're being visited by presences, entities, personages from the future and that became a way for me to bring uh darwin's successors on stage briefly so the the guy who's there sucking on the hookah hose and having these hallucinations finds himself in conversation with gregor mendel who proceeds to explain his insight Mm -hmm. into genetics and the the brand counterintuitive idea of somatic cells living lives that are completely independent of germ cells and then he he believes he's having a, a conversation with the French mystic Teilhard de Chardin and, and finally uh, Rosalind Franklin, who was so important and so 
unjustly neglected at the in Nobel terms of, ceremony. Absolutely. So important. Except, except the reader the knows that, that this guy can't be can't be imagining that because we know these are real fi- figures. Yeah, it's it's just well, you know, that's that's why God invented fiction. <laughs> get away with stuff like that, or you yeah. at least you can send it to the reader and say, reader, make of this what you will. Again, maybe that was uh, uh, how, how do I want to put this? Sort of a, a, a commercial miscalculation to import a frankly science fictional element into something that might otherwise be marketable with a straight face as, 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 as <laughs> historical fiction. But I can't, I, I cannot forsake my roots. In fact, I need, I need my roots. I, and I very <laughs> yeah. much want it, as, as you said at the beginning, to bring it full circle. It's not a novel about Darwin. It's not some kind of, uh, you know, this is, this is not, you know, Irving Stone's The Origin. Uh, it's, it's about ideas. It's about the coming of this, uh, this this trauma and i thought it would be great um if on his deathbed darwin um this is a spoiler and i don't care uh (laughs) darwin could learn that there is a person coming along in history called gregor mendel who will solve the mystery of heredity because darwin went to his grave bedeviled by the fact he didn't understand what the mechanism could possibly be he, he, you know, he, he, uh, you know, his his theory sort of begins with noticing that people's children are not duplicates of each other. There's this natural variation that obtains mm-hmm. throughout the whole biosphere, and that's why uh, selective breeding is so it's so successful. And what if he was visited or knew about the, uh, the discovery of fossil hominids in Africa? Because his theory predicts that. I mean, that, that's mm-hmm. one of. The, one of the things that makes it a scientific theory, it's predictive, uh, but he never uh, he never saw the the bones of, of man apes of, 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 of uh, you know, the Australopithecines. So he's told all about that. And then he's told about the mm-hmm. uh, how, how it is that that this molecule is able to uh, to replicate itself within our bodies and and how it can pass encoded information on not only throughout our bodies, but from generation to generation, that it's a code. And, and, and yeah. Dark did not have that insight either. The, the idea of genes just never got, got to him, I yeah. guess, at all. Mm. No. But at the same time, even without that, it's a novel which is, I, 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 I've, I've obviously read it, I've reviewed it. And it's a novel which has... A Victorian actress trying to pass a band of Peruvian Indians <laughs> off as one of the lost tribes of Israel because they built Noah's Ark. I mean, this is... I, I, I like that. Uh, uh, <laughs> that, that. That sounds like a hook to me. I don't know. Uh, that's what I think it is. I mean, that's it's yeah, close I, enough I, to science fiction. It's, well, it's, yeah, maybe. Just, I've, I've been, uh, you know, preaching on, on behalf of a, of a kind of wildness or craziness and in fiction, and it's not yeah. going to be to everyone's taste. Um, and but I, it seems like I can't do otherwise than to go <laughs> baroque. You know, I've just got this this Byzantine bone, and it keeps singing. And I and I I crank out these these uh, these extremely these extremely busy creatures, uh, <laughs> these chimeras, uh, and 
I hope to keep on doing it. I hope you do. It's it looks like you're having fun. Yeah, I'm ha- I'm having so much fun. I should be <laughs> I should be arrested. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, and I hope to just keel over writing a particularly particularly felicitous line of dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you do. I, I have to say that I, I am greatly enjoying Galapagos Regained and Only Begotten thank Daughter Stands is one of my favorite novels of all time. Oh, thank uh, you. Which That's I adore. And I, I can only en- encourage everybody who's listening to the podcast to go out and seek out a copy of, of Galapagos Regained, which is out now, as we said at the beginning of the podcast. And it, since, yeah, it's very much in print. My backlist, it's hard to sell. It goes in and out of print. And <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it takes some ambition to track down uh, the earlier James Morrow novels. But Galapagos uh, is, is in Barnes and & Noble and elsewhere, I hope. And if you'll um, forgive me for being crass about it, this is the time, listeners, to support a book if you're going to. Get out there and buy it when it's new. It really does make a difference. It does, yes. So, and with that, thank you very much, James, for making the time to talk to us. It's been fascinating and enjoyable. And uh, you know, we know that sort of it's always something to take time, time, time out of your day to do this. So we greatly, greatly appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. I had a terrific time. And oh, indeed, I w- would be willing to go on for another four or five hours. But <laughs> I, I suppose I none of us has the energy for that. So, right. <laughs> well, I'm sure it will hopefully uh, be another time. Here in uh, State College, Pennsylvania, it's nine. 35, and I'm going to go have a glass of wine. That sounds like an eminently civilized (laughs) decision. Excellent idea. And with that, thank you, James. You're welcome. And Mr. Wolf, I will talk to you again next week as we do. Talk to you again next week as usual.